church family, will you be seated? And as you are, will you take your copy of God's word and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 25? Uh, that's where I'm going to read here in just a moment is from Genesis 25. Although we will be in from the end of 22 through the middle part of 25 this morning. Um, the reason that we are going to look at really what account amounts to three different narrative events that take place here at the end of Abraham's life is because they really all point to the same idea that Abraham had a faithful ending in his final days. I'll explain more of that uh, as we get into the sermon, but instead of obviously taking enough time to read all of those this morning, uh, I just want to read two verses that mark the end of Abraham's life. And then after I read that, we'll pray both for our sermon, but uh, as we would typically do, uh, since we had a transition of power in Washington, D.C. and have new leaders, we will congregationally pray uh, for our new president and vice president as well. So I invite you to stand with me this morning as I read uh, from chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we recognize that your word is a sharp two-edged sword that regardless if, if we're considering two verses or multiple chapters, by the power of your Holy Spirit, it has the ability to correct and reprove and rebuke and encourage and train up in the lives of those who recognize it is true. So God, we invite you now to do just that in our lives. Would you spur us on both to righteousness and to good works? Would you help us to end well as we see Abraham do? Father, as we now have again in our land, as we have for the last nearly 250 years, experienced a peaceful transition of power, we thank you for that opportunity to live in a free land. And Father, we pray now together for our new president, Joe Biden, and for his vice president, Kamala Harris. We pray, God, that you would give them wisdom from above to lead our nation. We pray, Father, that you would help them to know right from wrong, that you, God, would allow them to bring about biblical justice in our world, that they would reward good and punish evil. We've recognized, Father, that as we live as Christians in a world that... Uh, does not understand who we are and is often directly opposed to what we believe, that we would be salt and light. Let us be people who would pray for our president, support them in the ways that they do good, and hold them accountable when they stray from the word of God, we pray together now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For the last three months of, at least in this series, not counting the time we took off at Christmas, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, some 14 chapters. This is now our 12th sermon where Abraham has been not the main character. Remember, God is the main character, the primary actor, but it has been specifically through Abraham's life that God has been working. 
to begin this promise that he would make Abraham and his descendants great, that he would bless them and multiply them beyond even the stars of the sky, and that through the descendants of Abraham would arise a nation that would bless all other nations of the world. Abraham has not been a perfect role model in these chapters. There have been times like his experience in Egypt, his first encounter with Abimelech, his time that he attempted to shortcut the provision of God and his promise that, that we, we've not looked upon Abraham as a role model. And there's been other times where Abraham has served as a great example for us of how someone lives in faith. What we will see here in these final three chapters is Abraham do exactly that. Follow God with his eyes focused on the promise. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I ran across a quote that I thought would be helpful to begin with and illustrate this point well. It's rather pithy. It says, beginning well is a momentary thing. Finishing well is a lifelong thing. That's good, right? Beginning well is a momentary thing. Finishing well is a lifelong thing. Like that's the kind of thing you would see as a meme, maybe on Facebook or on some kind of cute picture on somebody's office wall. Like that really seems to ring true. It's a very memorable quote. It sounds good. Unfortunately, that's actually a quote from a man who I'm not going to name because I have a general rule to not disparage the dead, who failed to follow his own advice. A man who after decades of successful ministry impacting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, finished in disgrace. His legacy will forever be tarnished by what happened, not during his life, but at the end. Someone who did not heed his own advice and finish the race well. Fortunately, we do have a good example here in the text of someone who does. In these three stories, we will see a new pattern emerge in the life of Abraham. It's a pattern that follows a similar course to what we saw happen in Genesis 22 last week. In each of these stories, Abraham will face a difficulty. He will then operate within faith in God's promise, recognizing that it is sure that God will keep his word, ultimately leading to the Lord blessing in all three cases. Now we recognize this is a lot of verses and typically I will read every word and we will go verse by verse through it. But for the sake of time, we will skip through some of these stories and I will tell part of them and we will read other parts to make sure that we're not here well into the afternoon. This first story that takes place in Genesis chapter 23 is one that begins with great tragedy as Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies and Abraham trusts the Lord to provide a place for her burial. Look with me at the beginning of that chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah and Sarah died at Kareth Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now we will note in each one of these chapters that first the difficulty that Abraham faces and then how he responds in faith and then finally how God blesses. And here in Genesis 23, the difficulty is not hard to recognize at all. His loving wife of so many years has now passed. We're told that she was 127 years old, which means if she was 90, as the text says, when she birthed Isaac, she's now, Isaac's now 37 years. They've lived as a family for this time. This is Sarah who followed Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans this, to go to a place that God had promised that was unknown to them. That, that went through bad times with Abraham, both in Egypt and their encounter with Abimelech. Times where they were in conflict with one another over how to deal with Ishmael. But ultimately, a loving, supportive wife who Abraham mourns for here in the text, weeps over. This was a marriage like so many others. At times was rocky, but ultimately clung to one another above all else in this world. And now Sarah has passed. And what Abraham must do is bury his wife, but here's what he recognizes. The entire time that he's been in the promised land, he hasn't owned a single piece of it. None of it belongs to him. Even though decades before God had led him to that place and had promised him that place, Abraham had always been and was often introduced in the stories where he was encountering outsiders as a sojourner. Just as he is here in verse 4, a sojourner and a foreigner among the Hittites. The Hittites were a smaller group within the Canaanites. So the Canaanites were the people that lived in all of the land, and then they were divided into distinct tribes. And the Hittites happened to be the one here in Hebron where Sarah has died. And so Abraham is faced with a problem. Where do I bury my wife if I don't own any land. What do I do? So that's his difficulty. And he's going to trust that God will provide. And he goes to the Hittites and the Hittites, rec Hittites recognize God's favor on Abraham and deal favorably with him. Look, pick up at verse five. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and treat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. So we know what his difficulty is. And now we see his point of faith that Abraham, who's lived amongst this people now for a generation, had practiced faith in front of them that when he comes to them in their time of need, what do they say of him? You are of the one true God. They were not. These are pagans idol worshipers. They had multiple gods who they believed in, but what they recognized to be true about Abraham's life is the same thing that Abimelech had recognized a few chapters before. God is with you. Abraham had lived his life in such a way in the public's eye to this point that when he comes to these strangers, they say, we know you. 
you have lived as God, as one of God. So much so that you can have any tomb in the land that you want, the Hittites say. None of us will withhold any tomb of ours that you have. Pick any one of them and bury them. So the, the recommendation from the Hittites is they recognize Abraham's faith. They recognize God's hand in his life. And they say, you just pick where you want and bury them. But Abraham had another idea. Abraham didn't want to borrow a tomb. He didn't want to continue being a sojourner and a foreigner. Abraham wanted a piece of property, a place where he could bury his wife, Sarah. And so while we're not going to read these verses, what ends up happening with this man named Ephron that Abraham uh, entreats there who was already sitting at the city gate was one of the elders there with the Hittites. He bargains with this man for this piece of land. He says, I've got my eye on this one. It's a field. It's got a cave in it. And at first that man even offers the field. He's like, you just have it. What's this between me and you, Abraham? You just have the field. And Abraham says, no, I want to pay you for it. And so they value the land at 400 pieces of silver. And Abraham gladly pays Ephron that money so that he can bury his wife. They deal favorably with him. And Abraham doesn't manipulate the situation trusting that God will provide, and he does. And ultimately, a burial site becomes the first secured piece of the promised land. Look with me in verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Mechpelah, which was to the east of Marm, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees were in the field throughout it, whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, of the field of Mechpelah, east of Marm, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Abraham is able now to bury Sarah in what is the first piece of the promised land to be owned by the patriarchal family. For decades, Abraham had sojourned in the land that God had promised him. We had seen just a couple of chapters before that Abraham settled enough in one place that the scriptures told us he planted a tree, which if somebody's going to plant a tree, it means they're going to be there for a while. That Abraham had dug a well. If somebody's going to dig a well, it means they're going to be there for a while. But those were always pieces of property that other people let them live on. Now, even though this isn't a place they're going to live, but a place they're going to bury their dead, it is still the first piece that they would own. And this is the first blessing here. It's the blessing of chapter 23, that God provides the promised land, the place where Sarah, and this will come full circle when we get to 25, Abraham himself will one day be buried. That's the first story where Abraham trusts the Lord to provide a burial place for his wife. And now Abraham turns his attention to his son, Isaac. And Abraham is going to trust the Lord to provide a wife for him. This, there's a conundrum in Abraham's mind. Once he's mourned his wife and buried her, he looks at his son who was 37 at the passing of his uh, wife, is ultimately 40 when he uh, marries. It's time for him to be married. It's time for him to pass on the promise of God that Abraham is passing to Isaac onto his generation. He needs a wife to do so. 
But here's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 7. There's a, there's a problem that arises. Look at this in Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all the things he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. Now, before we read verses 12 through 14, let's just, here's the, here's the tension, right? Isaac has got to marry. If we're going to pass on to a third generation this promise, Isaac needs a wife. And so Isaac needs a wife but he can't leave the land because this was the promised land. And this is, Abraham repeats this wife. My son is not to leave this land. This is the land that God showed us. But you also recognize the other problem, right? He can't marry a woman that lives in that land. So Isaac can't leave to go find a wife, but he can't marry any of the women that are there in that land. So what is Abraham to do? He trusts here, we see the Lord, Right? Well, there's the difficulty that Isaac can't marry a woman from Canaan, but can't leave Canaan. Abraham sends his servant to his homeland, back to Mesopotamia, back to Ur of the Chaldeans, where he still has a brother who lives. Genesis 11 told us that Abraham had two brothers, one of which died when Abraham was still there. The other is still in that place. And so he sends his servant back to that place to follow what he calls the, who he calls the angel of the Lord. He's going to go before you and prepare the way, demonstrating faith in the Lord. Now pick up in verse 12 with me. So the, the, the servant has gone back to Mesopotamia, back to that place where Abraham's family is from, and he's taken camels with him. And he goes and he prays this, O Lord God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughter of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So this servant being instructed by Abraham that the angel of the Lord is going to go before him, going to, prayer, going to prepare the way, that God's got this, right? This is, the, this is the demonstration of faith. Abraham and the servant now, God, you're in control of this. We're going to trust you. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go up to the well. I've got my 10 camels with me. Now, it would have been custom that a man sitting there at the well, women drew water from, from wells in that day, that a woman draws water from the well would offer it to a man standing by the well. But she wasn't necessarily required to also water his 10 donkeys. Or not 10 donkeys, 10 camels. Donkeys, that's not the same thing at all. She's not required to water his 10 camels, right? So what, is, what does he do? He says, Lord, the one that offers to do that, to go that extra mile, that's gonna be the one who you have picked. Now, this story is actually recounted twice. What happens next, this is why it's 67 verses in, in Genesis 24. 
is because we almost get a word for word retelling. We get the actual event that happens in the narrative and then we get a retelling of it to Rebecca's family. And what we're gonna do is we're not gonna look at it as it happens. We're gonna look at it as, in, in Rebecca's family as the Lord answers the faithful prayer for provision, right? So he's got these 10 camels, not donkeys, sitting by the well and something happens and then they go back to the family and they tell them, look with me, pick up in verse 45. But I had finished speaking in my heart. Behold, before I had finished speaking in my heart. So before he's finished the prayer, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give you your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I said to her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who milk bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her hands. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Then now, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, let, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban, Laban this was her brother, and Bethuel, this is Rebekah's father, answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. So this servant, in the immediate moment that he offers this prayer of faith on behalf of his master Abraham, Rebekah shows up. Now, this man has likely never been to this land. He would not have known any of these people. It would have been foreign to him. And so the Lord clearly provides an answer for him. You say, now why, why consider the retelling instead of just looking at the narrative? Because the retelling is important. Who he's talking to. He's talking to a man named Laban and a man named Bethuel. And if you'll remember last week when we ended in Genesis 22, there were a few verses left over in Genesis 22 that we didn't consider that seemed kind of out of place, but they were actually introducing this. They were a forerunner that after Abraham had taken Isaac to the mountain to be tested by God and God provides a ram there and they sacrifice and come down, we're told in verse 20 of Genesis 22, after these things was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah, has also borne children to your brother, Nahor. Then in verse 23, one of those children is named Bethuel, and Bethuel fathers Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. So Abraham's brother, who stayed back in Mesopotamia, had eight children, the youngest of which is like the man named Bethuel, and Bethuel fathered a woman named Rebekah, who happened to come out to the well at just the right time, say just the right thing. And when that story is recounted to her father and brother, they say, this is a thing of the Lord. There is nothing else for us to say. So this demonstration of faith in Abraham and his servant for God to provide a wife for Isaac has been answered by God. And then we see the blessing that a loving union becomes the next generation to carry on the promise. Pick up with me in verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate, uh, to meditate in the fields towards evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camels and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? 
The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his wife, uh, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we see the second blessing in a row that Rebekah goes to marry Isaac, that she's faithful to what the Lord has spoken to do. And she goes to a land that she did not know to marry a man that she had never met. But a man, and I'm grateful for this part of the text, who sees her, takes her into his home and loves her. And this loving union now is complete. And the next generation of God, of of God's promise is going to be together in Isaac and Rebekah. So in chapters 23 and 24, we've seen this same pattern. Abraham has a dilemma for bearing his wife, for marrying his son to a woman not of the land. And in both cases, Abraham responds in faith. And in both cases, God answers and provides and ultimately blesses. Bless, and blesses in a way that continues to fulfill his promise. Verse 23, the promise tied to the land, the first piece of land they would own. Chapter 24, tied to the promise of making his generations great because Isaac needed a wife to continue on those generations. The third account, Abraham ends his life focused on the promise of God. Now we're told something in Genesis 25 that maybe you didn't ever know. It reads, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, if I asked you this morning, who's Abraham's wife? Everyone in this room, if you knew, would have said Sarah. I doubt anybody would have said Keturah, right? You probably didn't really know that name very well. She actually bore more children to him than his previous wife, And those children are listed there for us in verses two, three, and four. And then something happens though. Abraham having, and he lives, he outlives uh, Sarah by a a number of decades. He's 175 when he dies. So he knew these children. These children grew up in his midst. He would have loved them just as he loved Ishmael. He even sought, if you'll remember before Isaac was born, sought for God to place his blessing upon Ishmael. We can imagine that Abraham loved these children just the same. And so here's the dilemma that we can see here in Genesis 25. How does Abraham show favoritism to just one child? Who God has clearly said, this is the child of promise. Abraham's not done anything wrong by having these other children after the passing of Sarah with his new wife, but what's he to do? Well, We're told in verse five, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. Now, we don't know how far away eastward into the east country is, but it's away. That's what we need to focus on. He didn't send them away destitute. He didn't send them away empty-handed. Abraham, by this point, had grown to be extremely wealthy. And he gave gifts, he gave provisions to his other children and told them to go away. They ultimately go away from the promised land. Why? Because the promised land belongs to Isaac. The birthright 
of carrying on the promise of God to make Abraham's name great and to bless his generations and to make him into a great nation that would bless all other nations in the world cannot be confused with his brothers and sisters. It is only through Isaac that this promise would be fulfilled and Abraham recognizes that and practices faith in giving Isaac his full birthright, allowing him to be the one to remain in the land. And then Abraham dies and is buried by his sons with Sarah. Verse seven, these are the days of the years of Abraham, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age and an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Marm, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. These Abraham, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. The blessing from the first story has now come full circle. That first piece of the promised land that the patriarchal family finally owned after all of these years, Abraham is buried in that cave next to Sarah, his wife. So that's the first blessing that we see here in Genesis 25 is it's that blessing of Genesis 23 is, is renewed in the, uh, in the burial of Abraham. They didn't take Abraham back to the land of his forefathers. They buried him right there where in the land that God had promised him, he would be buried. And when this text says that Abraham died in good old age and a man full of years, it just doesn't mean that he lived a long time. Doesn't mean that he saw and did a lot. We should understand from this that Abraham did what God wanted him to do. That his years were full because he was obedient to God. No, he wasn't perfectly obedient to God outside of Jesus Christ. No one is. But Abraham was obedient to God. And we see here in these final stories, this repeated over and over, the faith of Abraham in the promise of God. But there's a second blessing here in this text. Look at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. The Lord's blessing moves on to the next generation. Abraham has passed. Abraham lived a life full of years, at times relying on his own, uh, his own desire and his own will and even uh, his own plan to bring about the promise of God. But ultimately, the demonstration of Abraham is one to us of a faithful life well lived. And because of Abraham's faith and in the promise of God, that promise is now continued on to the next generation where God is now blessing Isaac. We've seen a lot in the life of Abraham over the decades called from the land of his, his kindred, Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to a land that God would show him, to God repeatedly repeating that promise that he would give him a son to then God asking Abraham to take his son to a mountain and testing him there by calling him to sacrifice his son, then providing a ram in his place. And here at the end of his life, he cares for his wife, he cares for his son, and he goes to be with his God, passing the blessing to the next generation. So what? 
Like Abraham, we too must persevere to the end with our eyes fixed upon the promise of God. No, Abraham was not perfect, but Abraham finished well. He ran the race. He did it well. And I'm grateful for this illustration here in this text, this patriarch who there were times that we just weren't sure if we didn't know the end of the story, we weren't sure how it was going to ultimately turn out for Abraham. But Abraham keeps his eyes focused on the prize. He runs his race well. He endures and perseveres to the end. And we too must do that with our eyes fixed on the promise. Now the promise to Abraham was his promise to make his generations great, right? And make him into a great nation and to give him a promised land. Our promise is different because the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so all of the promises of scripture for us point to Jesus. All of the promises of scripture find their yes in Christ for those who believe. And so really we're looking at the same promise all fulfilled in Jesus. There's another passage of scripture that speaks to this. Another man who finished his race well. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. We could kind of think about them like an Abraham and an Isaac, one generation passing on to the next. And what we know is this is one of the last books that Paul writes. He's really towards the end of his life. He's recognizing that the day is going to come where the persecution that he's endured now for a few decades is, is going to culminate in his death. He knows it. And so he writes one more time to his protege, Timothy, and mind what he says here, starting in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about your Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age, ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I am appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, Abraham knew his days were numbered in this text and he cares for his wife and he cares for his son and passes on the blessing. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul knows the same thing, imprisoned again. He knows his days are numbered and he writes to Timothy one last time to pass on certain things to him. We may not know. There may be people in this room that know that you don't have many days left. For many in this room, we we have, if statistics hold true, we look ahead of us and we think, I've got a long time to live. But can I just tell you, there's not a single person in here that really knows. You don't know. You're not promised tomorrow. The only one who knows is the Lord. He's numbered your days. This one could be the last. You could have years, decades, even still ahead of you. But since we don't know how close we are to the finish line, since we don't know how many breaths we still have to draw, how many days we will wake up still on this earth, we must all 
consider our lives as being right there towards the end of the finish line. We must all recognize that what we do today may be the last things that we do because we're not promised tomorrow. And whether we have a day, a decade or more ahead of us, we are all called to persevere to the end, not with our eyes fixed on ourselves, but with our eyes firmly fixed on the promise of God, persevering to the end. In that same letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he writes about people who were a part of his ministry who fell from one side or the other, who he had to leave in certain places, who abandoned him, who walked away from the faith. There are people in our day where I began the sermon and there were people in Paul's who did not finish well. And his instruction to Timothy is his instruction to the church, finish well. And if you think you can do that on your own, you're mistaken. Paul knew that, which is why he said, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here's the good news, Christian. You do not have to run this race alone. He has given you his Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who every day is helping you put off sin and put on Christ. He has given you the people of God with whom you are running this race with together. You're not alone. We together run this race, and most importantly, we run it empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can keep our eyes focused on the end. Oh God, let us run the race with endurance. Let us let our eyes be affixed on your promise. Let us not look to our own comfort and to our own cares and to our own ways. Let us not fall by the wayside, but let us persevere recognizing this, whether we have one day left or a thousand, there's a reward of eternal life awaiting in the end. Let's pray together. God, we too, all like Abraham did here in this text, will one day pass from this world. Would we be found faithful? Would we be found to be faithful, God, in all things to you? Enduring to the end by the power of your Holy Spirit, persevering in this life, making the best use of our time. And we recognize our time just as it was in the New Testament. Our days are, the, the days around us are wicked. But we, salt and light, oh God, can be your ambassadors here. Let, us be, let it be said of us what was said of Abraham. You are a prince of God among us as we seek to persevere in this life showing people Jesus, following you, running the race to the end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.